everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. We are excited that you're here. Indeed. We're here for another wonderful podcast about <laughs> investing. The way you're supposed to do it. Way not what they tell you in high school. Pump us up right at the beginning. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, you shouldn't invest the way they tell you in high school. And okay. they don't even tell you in high school. Anything. Okay. And you shouldn't invest the way they teach you in college. Definitely not that. And you shouldn't invest the way your financial advisor tells you because that is a way to just great, greatly mediocre returns. You should invest the way the best investors in the world do it. Which we are trying to decipher. We will decipher that for you. We've been deciphering and we'll keep deciphering because it's really fun. We love talking about this stuff. Totally. And I love having my daughter here with me, although she's in Zurich. That's me, dad. You're talking to me. I know. I'm just talking. You talk to the to the like, listener. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited that you're feeling better. You're feeling better. You're getting past. I'm COVID. doing a little it's bit going. better. I don't like to say too much because it usually goes down once I start feeling better. So, <laughs> it's, but it's two steps forward, honey. It's two steps. It's then one, and then two, two steps, steps forward and one and a half steps back all kind the time. Of, but I think the, I think it's getting better. Better, bigger steps. Yeah, so, the back is hard. So it's a good moment right now. to talk about tech now. stocks. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so oh, last time we were talking about um, exits and trying to like get my mind wrapped around this idea that you threw at me that maybe buying and selling out of a good company that is still a good company might be the right option and we've been I've been trying to get my arms around that one because yes, I've very much yes. taken into heart that uh, that once I find a wonderful company and as long as nothing's changed and I still think it's wonderful I stick with it but you are changing my mind a little bit on that one or as we put the last time maybe there's a third option or there's two mm-hmm. other options. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many options I had in the beginning. <laughs> Whatever. Three options. <laughs> All right. I'm going to repeat something since you're muddy in the water here. Am I? Um, yes. <laughs> All these options is that the most important thing you can do is to buy a wonderful business when it's on sale. If you do that, then the rest of this is just sort of trying to maximize your overall return. Your overall return is going to be better by far than buying a pile of companies that your financial advisors tell you to do or a whole bunch of ETFs and diversify all over everything. If you can just follow along with what Warren Buffett's been teaching us for 60 years, you're going to do better, I believe. And so we, we want to buy a wonderful business. We want to buy it on sale. All right, those are the, that's the basics. That's why we don't spend a lot of time talking about when do we sell this thing. But I will admit, selling can have a major impact on what the overall rate of return is. Yeah. I have continually, throughout my career, sold too soon. It, it, is, it is, if I have a major fault, that's it. That's the major fault. And I'm really not going to blame myself for it, honestly. <laughs> I, I mean... 
the last eight years have been ridiculous in terms of what the market's doing relative to my entire career and the careers of everyone I know before me. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can go back 140 years to, to try to find a market like the one we've had in the last 12 years, and you won't find one. Uh, maybe in the roaring 20s, kind of, but not even then. Not even then. I mean, just as an example, I don't know if you knew this, Danielle, but the P.E. ratio in 1929 on the S&P 500 was 14 hmm. when it crashed. Wait, when right? it? What, what do you mean when it crashed? When it crashed. Like, after like that was the high right before it crashed. Yeah. A 14 P.E., which was just the historical average. Right? Mm -hmm. our, 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 our sort of 10-year averaged P.E.s right now are running 30 yeah. Something like that. Twice Gosh, as high. it's so interesting, so, though, to think about why that might be. I bet there's some really good articles about there about why that would be. But the thing that comes straight to mind is the difference in disclosure requirements between now and then. Like, think back oh. then. Companies didn't have to file things uh, the way they do now. They didn't have to disclose their financials the way they do now. I don't even know if GAAP existed back then. Generally accepted accounting principles. Um, like the risk of buying a public security was so much higher than it is now just based on the information asymmetry. It's wild to think about. I know I, I would, I, I really don't want to agree with you, but I might have to because I just really don't like the regulatory authority um, that was put in place in the 1930s. It, but maybe maybe I've got to admit that it's valuable. It's just that you just see that you know we used to only only a few years ago within the last twenty years we've had twice as many public companies as we do now. Mm -hmm. We're down to about you know we're down to about half of where we were just from two thousand seven, and so and that's because of regulatory overreach in my view. I mean P. Companies don't want to go public because of so much exposure that they have to the regulators. That's absolutely correct. That's, I would say, half of it or maybe more, a little more than half. And then the, I think the other component of that is the incredible rise of private money going into private companies, of private equity and venture capital going into private companies. And that mm -hmm. has been a huge change on the private markets. It just was Agreed. not like that before. Agreed. Yeah, I, I agree. That that has been a huge change. And that huge change is on the back of the United States having the largest venture capital pool of any country in the world um, by far, mm -hmm. bigger than all of Europe, bigger mm -hmm. than all of China. I mean, it, it is one of the real backbones of American enterprise. Absolutely. Is that we have capital and you can go after it. If you're If you're in Europe, I mean, a lot of people point to Europe as being you know, a better political regimen or something. But if you're in Europe, you're living in a world of really kind of hidden aristocracy. I mean, the, the families that have the money marry their children to the families that have the money and keep the money in the aristocracy. And if you want to raise money for, an, for a venture, good luck. I mean, the banks aren't going to do anything. There's almost no, no real venture capital in Europe like there is in the United States. The well, banks aren't really venture capitalists. No. So, yeah, the banks. That, you know. I think it's it's a little too broad to say Europe because every country has very different laws and cultures around risk taking and entrepreneurship and venture capital. In some countries, I would say your characterization is 
I don't know about the aristocracy, marrying aristocracy, but generally the banks are quite conservative. Um, but some European countries are really trying to become entrepreneurial and attract businesses and attract entrepreneurs. Like Portugal's doing that. Spain is doing that. The UK True. has been doing that for years and been extraordinarily successful. The accelerators in London, especially around financial companies, are highly developed. Hmm. Um, That's pretty cool. The Netherlands has been really have been really trying to attract businesses and entrepreneurs it's relatively easy to get a visa and move there so it's it's interesting the way different countries have approached the issue but in general i mean yeah the u.s has 20 30 years on all these other countries i mean there's some great books out there about um very successful entrepreneurial countries like um israel is a massive case study example there's mm -hmm, probably like mm -hmm. 10 books about israel and entrepreneurship and how they've built up their um incredible culture and then chile has actually done surprisingly well they've really been trying i don't know how, how successful they've been but they've been really trying and then like i said various countries in europe so and then asian countries are starting to do quite well so it's obvious the success the u.s has had with the looser regulatory requirements around smaller investments into um, high growth early stage companies and other countries are trying to emulate that success but because the u.s started it so much earlier and invented it and it's so deep in our culture at this point and maybe always has been because we're a country of immigrants who are by definition risk takers um, I think we have we have it in our DNA, if you want to say that, if, if if I can say that, in a way that nobody else does. I would I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna urge all of you listeners to do something that might really help a few of you become very rich. <laughs> so this isn't this isn't gonna work for everybody, but it's gonna help a few of you. Um, if everybody were to write, I mean, there's thousands of you listening to this podcast. If if all of you wrote a letter to your secretary of state and say, we demand that you allow small fund managers the right to ah. take a participation fee. Well, that is a, a different completely. Hold on. Hold on. Uh, I know, Hold but, on. but I just want to mention stop me in the middle of my pitch. It's completely Why? different than what Why? we've just Wait. been talking about. Well, let me finish. You've, you've said finish. this like 10 times on here. Go ahead. Oh, well, I'm going to out of 400 almost <laughs> podcasts, I'm going to say it again. Yeah. All right. Now, now you made me start all the way over. <laughs> Write your secretary of state a letter and ask that they remove the regulations prohibiting you from starting a fund and charging a participation fee of 20 or 25 percent of profits for unaccredited investors. You're going to have a fund of unaccredited investors and you want to take a participation fee. You want to be able to have a percentage of profits. It is such bull that these regulators have stopped you from doing that. This is how Warren Buffett started. It's how my teacher started. It's how I started. And now the regulation over the last 40 years has just become such an overarching big brother 
absurdity that you are not going to be allowed to do that in most states. And all it is is some decision by a state, you know, secretary of state type people to just stop you from doing it. So the point of that is, and the reason I brought it up in this context, is that that used to be a way for very small investors who are unaccredited. That means you don't have $2 million mm-hmm. unqualified or a million dollars. You know, you've only got $50,000 or something. That used to be a way for small investors to have an opportunity to have a, someone really good manage some money for them and do really good returns with it potentially. And now they've taken that away under the notion that I disagree with completely that says that, oh, it's just too much of a risk for the small investor, the one with no money, um, to have a fund manager who might be too aggressive because he's making a participation fee um, versus taking a 1% fee. of so, so they're fine with you fund managers taking a 1% fee, but the problem is, of course, you can't make a living on a 1% fee until you have a huge pile of money. Right? $100,000 will make you $1,000 a year. The cultural difference there as well. I didn't know this until well, I was going to say recently, but it must have been before I got sick. So let's say two two or three years ago. Um, in the UK, there's a really strong cultural bias against fund managers, financial people taking a participation fee. They view that as being like an incredibly massive red flag being waved about this person isn't that interesting whereas like as somebody who came up with uh with venture capital being my clients as a lawyer like everybody takes a part like that's how venture capital works you take a participation fee and it just seemed so like obvious and natural to me and so when i was talking to these people who are british investors um and they were just you know, telling me about this, like, view generally in the UK, and that if you did that, um, like, people would just not even talk to you, like, people wouldn't be interested in investing at all. It's so interesting to me, that massive difference. I don't know if that's changed much. Maybe it has been changing. But that was just a few years ago that I heard that from some very well connected people who really, who really know the culture. Um, man, I mean, you think about what that one little regulatory change does, where the regulators, of course, they don't know what that they does. They actually know massive. a lot. They actually know a lot. And Why they would get, they do that? Because they view it as risky. The same reason that people in the UK view it as risky, because you have no downside and a huge upside. That's why. So, Yeah. It's just, it's just, uh, nobody's really figured, it's kind of like democracy, like nobody's really figured out a better way, and it seems to work decently well most of the time, and sometimes it doesn't. So, should we talk about Uh, tech stocks? Yeah, sure, and and so let's dive in here real quick. Um, Tech (laughs) stocks, we were going to talk about tech stocks in the context of whether they were really investable or not. Um, particularly because they are leading the charge in going on sale. Um, Google is arguably on sale, potentially Alphabet, um, arguably. Apple, not really. Meta, arguably, is getting down into on sale territory. Um, And these are companies that are, they just 
make massive cash flow. It's just incredible the amount of billions of dollars of free cash flow that they deliver. Um, speaking about basically uh, Google, Meta, Microsoft, Apple, um, are the four that jump into my mind uh, that are really cash flow engines. Facebook doesn't produce cash flow so much, although they're starting to. They're they're expecting to do about a billion dollars this year, but that's not even remotely in the ballpark of what these other guys do. I think Apple is at 111 billion of free cash flow. Microsoft's like at 94 billion of free cash flow. So you know, these guys are monster cash machines, and that's of course what we look for. So why wouldn't we want to jump on the back of one of these fabulous? earth-shaking technology companies, right? Well, can we talk about them in the context of exits? Because that's what I'm curious about. Ooh, wow. Okay. Because that's what we were talking about last time. Ah, all right. So, But you okay, want to talk right? about so maybe investing in them. Yeah, well, let's say you buy some Google. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, what's interesting, we can talk about investing in them. I'm just curious because probably a lot of people already own these companies. Um, and since we were talking about when do you get out, basically, was essentially the crux of the conversation. Um, and when do you get out of a technology company was the, tr the crux of the conversation? Okay. No. We, I mean, we were talking about these three or four exits, whatever, right? The, the, the three being that you, you have a choice of buying and holding forever. Yeah. That's where you're sitting. And Warren Buffett's sitting there, pretty much, and Munger, just sitting and holding great companies. Um, and we talked about why. I don't know why you're doing it, but I can tell you why Buffett and Munger are doing it, because they didn't used to do that. And they didn't make their fortune doing that. They made their fortune buying and then selling when this thing got anywhere near intrinsic value and moving on to the next one. But as Charlie and Warren have gotten huger and huger, it's become more difficult for them to have the flexibility to get out. Uh, you can't just sell out of 10% of the entire shares of Coca-Cola and have the stock be okay. Mm -hmm. So they, they're much less flexible, much less nimble. Um, but, uh, you know, arguably it's a great investing strategy. I mean, ideally you just let that company continue to produce a lot of money over time. And it's certainly been a great strategy for the last 10 years. So um, hard to argue with that one. Then there's the one that I tend to do, which is buy and sell when it gets to intrinsic value. Um, a very early Warren Buffett style investing. And hold cash and or and buy something else. And hold cash. Hold cash. All right. And then just wait for the next opportunity. And then um, the third option is to buy great companies and then when they're on sale and then sell them only when you have an opportunity to buy something else. So you'd look through your portfolio and say, well, this one's not growing as fast as it used to. Maybe I'll sell it now because I can buy ABC company. Yeah, exactly. And it's really on sale. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a little bit of a, you know, a, a merger of the, the first one and the third one, right? So the first one and the second one. So you, you basically you've got some of the value of holding long term, but you also have the value of keeping the velocity high of your money working as hard as it can. Yeah. Um, and the so risk that, that you'll okay. hold into a big downturn and then you've lost the There's, the gains that were there. 
There's the rub. Yeah. And and the reason that that's a big big rub is because we're not good at at uh, market timing at all. We we don't know how to do that. Um, what we'd use to decide to exit is price and value and looking at those two things. So if the price of the stock is well above the value, I, w I really do want to sell it. And if I'm not selling it because I don't have any place to put the money, then I do run the risk that the market crumbles because everything's massively overpriced. It really should crumble and should have crumbled, in my view, years ago. Um, and maybe it's crumbling now. I mean, you know, you can you can wait forever for the market to crumble and be right eventually. <laughs> but, but meanwhile, you're not getting great returns. So the the possibility that you run the risk of is that the market crumbles right up from under that stock and you just ride it down. And you don't really you don't really have a crystal ball. You just sort of see it going down and it's gone down before and then come back up. And that's what most people are doing right now is hoping things come back up. So the fourth kind of way of doing this that we could use is to apply what we call the arrows or what are what sort of Yeah, you mentioned tools. that. But yeah. Yeah. That that's another way to go where you would say, "Okay, I'm buying a wonderful business. I am holding it and now it is at intrinsic value, what shall I do? And the right answer a lot of the time actually is hold it, but watch the arrows that I discussed in the book rule number one. Watch those arrows on a long term or a long period view. So you don't want to do it on a short term basis. You want to do it on a long term period view, which is, you know, at least 30 days or longer. Uh, for using the tools. So I'm not going to teach you all about how to use the tools here on the podcast. Just get the book and look at it and it'll tell you exactly how to use them. Well, and as, as we said last time, periods, we did a whole periods. episode or two or three on those tools. So you can go back and, and find that. Yeah. Somewhere. <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Like I said last time, I think it's in like the 200s somewhere. Oh my God. Are we in the 200s? So yeah, I don't know where we're that we're in the particular 300s. way of doing things is, is where I'm, that's kind of where I am now, is to ride these things in a market that's really pretty much insane in its overvaluing or overpricing and just ride them and ride them and ride them until you get three long-term red arrows and then you exit. And that seems to be about the best way to make the most out of things without taking risk. Okay. So, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, like where we ended last time was wondering about if tech stocks are in a different category, and I'm just still wondering that. Are tech stocks in a, in, in a different category or in like maybe one of these categories and not the other ones? And the reason I'm thinking that is that they're harder. Maybe it's just a risky biz category. I don't know. But they're just harder to predict. And the technology changes so quickly. Um that that's what puts them into this risky category. And so I wonder if maybe they are, this is just my instinct. I think I would put them into the second category of sell it sticker. Boom. 
whether you go into cash mm-hmm. or you go into another company, you, 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 you plan your strategy if you're going to buy one of those and stick to it. Which well, is usually a, to sell, idea. which is but usually you do to that on sell everything you buy. I think. Yeah, of course you should do that. You're right. Of course you should do that on everything you buy. But let's let's talk about what makes these different, you know? Yeah. I mean, the essence of a tech company is at least okay, one view of tech companies is they grow by creative destruction. So Apple computer grows by destroying iPhone 13 and mm-hmm. with iPhone 14. Mhm. Destroying right? the iPod they, by putting music on the iPhone. Right on. Mm-hmm. So th- th- this idea of creative destruction is how tech companies move forward. Um, but, man, you think about Facebook moving forward by acquiring mm-hmm. a lot of other companies that have come out of nowhere and produced some really amazing technological breakthrough that changes our lives, like WhatsApp and uh, Instagram, yeah, which it bought. And um, and Google out there inventing new stuff all over the planet, right? And then you get sort of a tech mogul like Elon Musk who is trying to reinvent solar panels and reinvent space launches and reinvent tunnels and reinvent cars and and now reinvent a public square, <laughs> right? With, tic- with, uh, with Twitter. Twitter. Um, and so you you're looking at this and just going, well, where are they going to be in ten years? And it's yeah. very difficult for for some of these companies to have for for us to have a view of some of these companies. That's very well said. You know? That's that's a really good encapsulation of the issue of investing in high growth, mature tech companies. Yeah. So I think I might go along with you on your idea that you do option two, which is to buy when they're on sale and sell it at intrinsic value. Because it's quite likely you'll get to that sale within a couple of years, two mm-hmm. or three years. In other words, you're going to buy it at half price. It goes back to full price. You get out. And that is a lot more, I guess, you can handle that mentally better than trying to figure out where a tech company is going to be in 10 years. I mean, who really knows? But in two years, you can figure Microsoft will still be rocking and rolling. Facebook will still be rocking and rolling. Google, Apple, they'll all be doing well in a couple of years, right? So if you can buy them on sale, I mean, we bought Apple at $13 a share in in current price, uh, in the current split. And, you know, that's just a kind of a no-brainer. It's delivering an 11% yield on owner earnings. It's just a no-brainer to buy that as long as you're not going to just sit in it forever. Be, if unless you have yeah. some crystal ball that you know Apple is going to be around in 10 years bigger than ever. Now, Apple, I think, is actually, Apple and Google are probably their own case. Apple, Google, Microsoft. I'm not going to put Facebook in the same category, but oh, I'll put Google, good. Microsoft, and Apple in a category that says in 10 years are all bigger. Yeah, all I mean, I think this is like the, the, the fundamental trouble that I run into every time is one impossible to predict where it's going to be in 10 years Two, got to be able to predict where it's going to be in 10 years to invest. (laughs) How do you, and then three, I'm confident it's going to be greater 
and successful in 10 years. I just don't know how. So it's almost, and I hate to say it like this because this is dangerous, but it's almost like there's kind of another semi category for companies like that where, and this is, I think what I hear you saying, where it's a little more like you're more on top of it. Maybe it's not a company that you're buying for the rest of your life, but a company that you have high confidence in, it meets everything except that like severe predictability element. And so like the second anything changes or the, it's, it's, it's like a very, um, I don't, I'm trying to think of a better way to say high risk, <laughs> but because <laughs> I think it's not high so, risk, well, here's but at the question. same would, time being really on top of any changes. What am I, what am I blabbering well, would you put, about? Would you put Apple in that category? Yeah, I would. You would, because Buffett clearly doesn't. Yeah, clearly. Right? I mean, he, he sort of famously said that, you know, as we said before here on the podcast, that when a good friend of his that owns a private jet said he'd give up his jet before he'd give up his iPhone, it was clear to Warren Buffett that, you know, something magic had happened at Apple. And um, and 50% of their revenues are coming from the iPhone. It is without question the 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 phone of choice in my view. Would you, would you agree? Oh, totally. I have one. I mean, the only reason you get some other phone is you can't afford an iPhone essentially. Uh, that's not true. A lot of people love their Android phones. I will defend that. But what? No, I, I, I know people who love their Android, like prefer it over the iPhone. Why? Uh, I don't understand it. I'm not giving details because okay. I don't know that. I don't get it. But I don't I get it because I've spoken I to people who feel that. Okay, but I, I operate in an ecosystem. Maybe they have a the whole different way of working, but I'm in an ecosystem that's an Apple ecosystem. I'm wearing an uh, an Apple Watch, the big one, the new big one. It's like big. I love yeah, it. it looks really nice. I like it. Does it? Yeah. I like it. I like it a lot. And I, you know, when I go out and I'm, I am on my horse out in in a country I don't know well, having the compass on this thing, I just push a button and it starts to enable me to backtrack my tracks off of my watch. Well, Garmin's is, been doing that for years, you know? Yeah, but it's not in a watch that's got everything else going on. Oh. Right? I've had Garmin watches and it's like, ah, oh, this is not the thing. Um, and I like Garmin. I love okay. my Garmin watch. Love. And listen, I'm not putting down you Garmin, guys, by the way. Phoenix we 7 use Garmin, S. It's really uh, good and it doesn't irritate me. We use me. Garmin for all of our hounds. We put the Garmin collars on. They're magic. I, I love them. Um, but this watch is in a whole different league and, uh, and it, it is magic. So the ecosystem, I'm, I've got Apple computers at home, Apple computers at work, and it all just works together. And that's the critical thing for me is I, I can't stand it when I got to try to figure some technology yeah, out in order for to sure. hook something up. Yeah, absolutely. I want my printer to work with my computer. Yes. I don't want it to be a thing. Which was right? Steve Jobs's original genius. It should right just on. work. Right on. It should just work. Don't need a manual. It should just work. So that that is what I understand Buffett realized about Apple is that it's an ecosystem that is without compare in the world, which means they no longer have to be a company that invents new things. All they have to wait for is for Samsung to come up with a new and better camera <laughs> and see what it does. And then they'll plug it into their 
iPhone or come up with something else somewhere else with some other technology and they just plug it into the system. And um, and that is such a powerful it's a powerful moat that where, you know, your customers aren't leaving. The switch moat is it's so a powerful moat. It's a very, very powerful moat, which has been breached massively twice in the history of computers. So one Mac the first time and two Microsoft and Windows the second time. No, the moat is ecosystem. When has that been breached? So first... A system where it all goes together. It all goes together. Everybody had Macs. All the pieces. Yeah. Back when Steve Jobs was running the company, right? Everybody had Macs. Mm-hmm. It was working well. well. You had. No, there was DOS. Remember DOS? No, you had a Mac computer. There's no ecosystem. You just had a Mac. There it is. Oh, okay. All right. Well, if you want to put it it's like that. It's the ecosystem which But everybody used Macs and then they didn't, right? Because Windows showed up and Windows was cheaper and easier. So everybody switched to that. Please I did. don't be confused by what Danielle is saying. <laughs> she is comparing apples to oranges here. Why do you think it's but, apples to oranges? Did you see Buffett buy Apple when he hit, when there was Macintosh out there? I don't think so. No. It's the advent of an e- ecosystem which makes Apple moving past the de- the demand of technology to to have creative destruction. So Apple by ecosystem you mean that. multiple products. Multiple products that all work together seamlessly. So, for example, the home, uh, what, technology ecosystem is yeah. a big deal. Yeah. And I could go get Nest with Google mm-hmm. and struggle to figure out how to put it all together. Or I can go get Apple's home system and turn it on. Right. And it works with my computers. Yeah. And my iPhone. So that's what I want. I don't want to have to have one of the guys that works for me go figure out how to put a nest system into my house so that's the gigantic difference apple hasn't been the inventor moving forward necessarily on home technology environments other companies have done that ring and all these other guys have gotten in front of that but apple will go in and take their share of that market and that's because of an ecosystem and that's that's the moat that they've got which is gigantic and that's why Buffett bought. Yeah, it's real okay. <laughs> All right, so it's really big and really strong, and big and strong moats can be breached, right? Oh yes, they can. I mean, okay. the home thing is a great example <laughs> because Apple's really failed in that arena. Google is by that's far winning. So it's I don't, Apple's Apple. Apple is just entering it. It's only just started to put together the product mix. Okay. Which I think is going to be a great example of how powerful that ecosystem is. But so the question, (laughs) we get into these like debates over how good Netflix is or how good Apple is, whatever. The point is, are these companies predictable enough or the same as all other companies such that you would make such, make like roughly the same decision-making process or are they in a different sort of riskier category? Well, that's what I'm trying to point out, the difference between Apple now and Apple back when you were saying, oh, you know, that moat got breached. Uh-huh. Totally different company, totally different moat. And and a technology company that has that kind of a moat is no longer really a technology company anymore. They've got a switching moat that technology companies don't have. 
right? I mean, it's like, as you said, there's a cheaper, almost as good model that comes out from some competitive company and bam, you're done Mm -hmm. with your more expensive but not good enough to be worth the price product. And, uh, you know, an ecosystem is an entirely different world. And that's what is the critical thing. When you've got a switching mode because everything you've got in the world is tied into this ecosystem, Mm -hmm. then you don't have a technology company per se and you do have predictability. And that's different. So I would say when you look at a technology company, if they have to survive by creative destruction and um, and could could be beaten out by the next generation of something that comes out of a garage, hmm. then they don't have a moat that you can count on. You don't know where they're going to be in 10 years. Oh, that's, God, that's interesting. Does yeah. that help? Yeah. And I, I wouldn't touch them just because we don't want to have companies that we can't predict unless you can buy this thing on sale and you have a you have a strong uh, uh, a strong view that this thing is going to go back up to intrinsic value in two or three years in other words it's a market meltdown the economy is going to recover and it goes back where it was good buy it but it's a short-term position it's mm. not a long-term position mm-hmm. i'd say that okay right. that's a good place to that's end it. okay Man. with that we were moment of moment of on on know, ends today. Disagree. Gosh. <laughs> oh. All right, time to go play. Have a great See week, everybody. Until next time. <laughs> Bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And I'm really important. It's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really hope you enjoyed it.